So that word ascribe is to uh, give credit to, give glory to, um, to think about, and then when you put the why, you put God's name in there. So let's do that scripture for just one second. Um, what do you have to be grateful for today? Maybe it's something simple like the fact that you're breathing right this second. Have you ever thought that's God's goodness to you? And maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you're blessed and it's where you work or that you have work. Maybe it's your church. Maybe it's that you're gathered with other people around you right now who are ascribing to God what belongs to Him. It's so easy to fall into the rut of just taking things for granted. Like, this is, happens for everybody. It's not that special. This moment in time is special. Because we have God's presence right here and right now. So, Father, we ascribe to you this moment. We ascribe to you the breath that we have right this second. We give credit to you, Father God, that you are good and that your mercies are brand new right now. And that all we're going to need today, God, you've already provided for us. And God, we can't use it up. But even if we did, tomorrow morning, they'd all be brand new again. God, thank you for your faithfulness and your friendship and your love and your grace. Thank you, God, for all that you do for us. God, thank you that you keep doing it even when we don't recognize what you're doing. We just thank you. We do exactly what the scripture tells us to do. We credit you. We credit you. We describe how good you are, God. We're thankful for you. Thankful for you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. And amen. Go ahead and you can have a seat. Thank you. A uh, little bit different uh, today in that if you looked at the notes, you realize um, that's not my normal way that we do notes. And let me, let me explain that to you real quick. Um, what we're trying to do right now during this little season um, for, forever and ever, and I don't think it's wrong, we'll probably go back and do it again at some point, um, maybe even in the near future. We would put together a series, and uh, the series would last you know, somewhere approximately four weeks, maybe a little more, but right in that four-week time frame. And so we're doing you know, uh, uh, 11 or 12 series per year. Nothing wrong with that. Um, felt like the Lord has led us into that, and it was really good. But, but the season that we're in right now, we felt like the Lord said, hey, just put it down. And allow me to lead you week by week into what you're going to teach on. Let's, let's just let it be something that's, you know, you're having to practice listening to me. And you're having to practice giving up, you know, the ease of, when you know it's a series, you know what you're going to teach about before you even go to study. It's like already locked and loaded. And uh, we just felt like the Lord said, hey, let me, just let me lead you. Just let me speak to you. Practice listening and then speaking. Okay, in theory, man, that's like really great. That's really awesome. The heart is right. Here's the problem. If you really are waiting on the Lord and he doesn't meet your timetable, the notes are due. And the people that operate, like the, they do a run-through here on Friday and they're going through everything to make sure that it's, that it's working the way it's supposed to be working and, um, you, you know, the whole thing. So they... The way that it works is I'll study the Wednesday prior, 10 days before that next weekend, and then turn my notes in, and they'll have them a week ahead of time. So the week happened and nothing, and then um, the next Wednesday was supposed to be the next set of notes for the following week, and I don't even have that set of notes. 
And uh, then Friday comes and they finally just contacted me and said, Pastor, we're just going to put lines on a paper. And um, you can, uh, you know, hopefully come up with a message before Saturday. And uh, so I did, late Friday night, I finally got it down on paper. But that's, that's why the notes look the way they, they look. And if you do, I, the only reason I even take any time and say that to you, if you really wonder if we are doing what we say, like really trying to follow, listening to God, and not, not have a series all planned out, uh, that would be the proof right there. That's not laziness. That is, that is literally waiting for God to... Uh, to give it to you. So um, it is a, um, I, I just put maybe a, um, not a disclaimer, but just a, a, a be aware. It's a warning message. It's not my normal way of teaching. I think I'm an encourager. I think I can be a strong encourager and I'll use any method to encourage people to pursue God. Um, but in this message, it's more of a warning. And maybe that's why waiting on God and it being outside of my normal uh, way of, uh, of teaching. Maybe that's, that's what, maybe God had to work with me a little bit longer uh, to get me there. But I do think that um, you'll find the benefit of it. You'll see the value of it. And uh, again, um, what you want to do, you'll need a pen or a pencil because I'd still like you to take notes. Um, I, will, I will reference some scriptures in this for sure. Here's the deal. Normally, they pull them up. They have the notes so they can put the the scriptures on the screen, and then you can just read along that way. But obviously, if I don't get those to them, they're unable to do that. So we're actually going to, this is called a Bible. <laughs> and I'm actually going to read from it this morning. So that's the, that's the, <laughs> some are like shocked. What is that newfangled thing you have? Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll go there. Hey, um, I just need to do this, and then we'll jump into the notes. Uh, for men, uh, any men involved in JFC, and that's whether you go to Lone Tree, you go to Parker, or um, you're part of uh, the online experience, however you're a part of JFC. In November, we've got two gatherings for men. November the 4th uh, is actually a ministry opportunity, 5 o'clock here uh, in this uh, location at Lone Tree. And then on the 18th, two weeks later, that's just a uh, food fund fellowship deal. This screen behind me, this big one, um, we can broadcast in, uh, in 4K, HD 4K. So they're going to do the Bronco game on this uh, screen right here and then do a chili deal, like a cook-off thing. So um, on the 4th, if you want to come to that, be a part of it, you'd go to jfc.org um, slash what? Where? What is that? jfc.org what? Events. Events. Thank you very much. I looked around for pastors. You're the only two in the whole, like during worship, there's dozens of them. And then I look, you are here. You know what? You get a raise. <laughs> And you know where it's coming from? Everybody else that left out of the... No, <laughs> John, you're like, yes, give, give it to me, man. All right. Um, so uh, if you would like to, jfc.org slash events, you can sign up that way. Because we do provide a meal for that, uh, it helps us to know how many are coming. And I just want to give you the invitation. I'll be here and uh, looking forward to that. So the 4th and the 18th, uh, two, two opportunities for men. Okay, uh, let's go. Got your pen, pencil, and uh, grab the notes real quick. I titled it The Spirit of the Age. The Spirit of the Age that we live in. Um, I, I think you'll, you'll get the drift after I... Uh, after I get going, why I picked that right there. Uh, many years ago, so, so many that I was a youth pastor at the time, um, I've done this. This is going into my 33rd year as a pastor. Um, you know, you do anything for that long, that's a long time to, to do something. 33 years as a, as a pastor is a, is a long time. When I started, um, you know, my, my route into ministry was a volunteer. Uh, I, I was going to school, but I was volunteering at a church. 
just whatever they needed, whether they needed someone to hand out bulletins. I cleaned. Um, pastor Terry Hilgers was actually the pastor that got me involved in ministry. I went to him. He, he was the youth pastor at the church we were attending at the time, and I went to him. He just said, I have a heart uh, for ministry. Can you use me? And Terry's all excited. Yes, I can. And he put me in the bathroom. That's the first place Terry, Terry put me at. So I got even. I hired him, and now guess what he does? No, he does. Yeah, um, <laughs> He, he is, uh, he, he's the best in the world. Um, so I, I just got in in a volunteer um, capacity, was going to school, um, serving at a church, and God saw fit to open an opportunity and became a, a youth pastor and just stayed faithful to it. And, and God has just been so faithful to me. Um, that's part of that ascribing thing that we, we did. I, I ascribed to him the credit for doing what I'm doing today. said all that to say this. Back in that day... Do you know this name, George Barna? Anybody recognize that name at all? It's an author. Here's who he is. Um, he, he's a believer, but he doesn't write Christian books necessarily. He's a sociologist. Studies people, people groups, culture. Uh, he's also a bit of an economist in that um, he's one of those guys that can look at trends and then pull out of a trend where things are going to be in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. So uh, about 30 years ago, he writes a book called The Frog in the Kettle. And maybe you've heard the analogy before. Here was his premise. I don't know if it's true or not, by the way. Don't go home and find out. Here, here's, here's his premise, that if you were to take a frog and throw it in a kettle of boiling water or hot water, that the frog, he would jump out real quick or do everything he could to escape. But that a frog um, can be fooled in that if you, if you slowly and systematically heat the water, the frog acclimates as the temperature goes up and becomes comfortable. So that at the last level, when you finally turn it up, he's too relaxed and he's too, I don't know what that, hot tubbed? He's too hot tubbed to, I don't know what the word is there. I'm not a sociologist, but I play one on the weekend. Uh, he, um, he just is at the point where it happens so gradually and he was so acclimated to his surroundings that it actually destroyed him. Yep. That was his premise. And he used it just to say that the culture that the church is experiencing right now is similar in that the degrees are being turned up very slowly. And that if any believer recognized what was coming and what was happening, somebody would stand up and go, stop. But because it's happening so gradually throughout culture, we become accustomed a little at a time. And how about this word, desensitized to what's going on around us. Uh, and, and I think believers have a tendency then to, to, to duck inside the four walls and think, okay, it's boiling out there, but we're okay in here. His premise was um, it doesn't work like that. So it makes its, it's, it's, it's the people. So whether you go in or whether you go out, if it's climatizing you, if it's acclimating you, you are that wherever you go. Now, I thought it was a pretty, um, you know, reading it that long ago, I, I just looked at where we were at in space and time, and I thought to myself, I see some of his points and some of his trends, but I, maybe he's, like, his prognosticating is, maybe he's just a doom and gloom guy. So here's, here's the thing, though. I picked the book up uh, in the last month or so and just thumbed back through it again. The guy's uncannily accurate when you look at it now versus what he said then. And just a couple of for instances that I think were really interesting. Uh, one of the big ones is that he predicted morality in the church. 
things that 30 years ago were decided issues. Here's where the line is. This is what we believe. It's what the Bible says. This is what we stand on. The morality issue was one. And then you had some predictions inside of morality. This was one. By the way, if this touches you today, I mean, I'm not being ugly. I'm not. This is the place you can recover and discover the promises of God, but allow me just the freedom to talk for a moment. So what he said on morality was this. There was a trend 30 years ago that um, believers, not the world at large, but believers, were beginning to forsake marriage and live together. And he said, based on where things are at in 15 years and 20 years, this is what it's going to look like percentage-wise inside the church. And he's uncannily accurate. In how many believers now, that is not an issue any longer. Yep. Uh, he, he, he predicted that truth would become a very relative thing to where people were at in culture. As long as we stay just behind what the world is doing, we feel, we're acclimated, we feel like we're not that bad. You Okay. Hey, my name's John. I'm your pastor. I love you. It's all, it's all. Here's what Pastor Murley told me last night. He said, you know, you preach a message like this. Thank God you've got some, some credit in the bank with these people because if it's that bad, they'll still come back next week. So um, I, I am not slapping or clawing or, or talking down. That's not my, my... It's a place to recover and discover the promises of God. But sometimes to look at something allows us to say, man, what has happened? What, what has happened? Uh, another thing he predicted was that a generation would arise... Um, now, they didn't have labels of uh, boomers and uh, X and um, Y and, and millennials. They didn't have those terms 30 years ago. But his prediction was that a generation would arise within the next 20 to 30 years who, who would reject out of hand what their parents had held to be true. And I think, man, he's uncannily accurate. When you look at millennials today, just statistically, millennials, um, and I realize when you say the word millennial, boy, you are, you are pulling and encompassing from a wide, wide group. So people that have never had any experience with God, and people that had. But his point simply was that inside of the church, there would be a group of millennials who, if they are not experiencing the reality, because, because the church was not much different than the world, what are we offering them to stay in the church? That, that was his point. Point well taken is what I, I think he had something there. I don't think that's ever... I'm looking around right now at many millennials that are sitting in here. So it's obviously not every millennial, but you'd have to admit that a group of millennials, whenever they're surveyed right now, this is the first generation in America, in our lifetime, that is saying religion is of uh, very little importance to me. It's pulling at the highest that it's ever pulled. Um, politically... He predicted uh, some interesting things on the political spectrum. Uh, he, he predicted some things um, that had to just do with, with, uh, with, with overall where, where the church would find itself. And um, I, I don't think he's 100% right. I wouldn't even call him a prophet because I don't think he was prophesying. I don't think it was of the Spirit of God necessarily. I think he simply took trends and then predicted, here's where this trend's going to go without something stopping it. Now, here's what really made it interesting for me is, you know, at the time, I'm kind of like, I, I don't, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Here, here's what I thought, time will tell. Time has told. And I found myself suddenly like, like in my heart recognizing there's this thing going on and recognizing that it's almost accelerating and recognizing here, here I guess I'd put it into this sentence right here. Man, I see the spirit of the age gobbling up so many believers, People that at one point loved God with all of their heart but find themselves either, either um, compromised and leveled this way so that they're ineffective are actually pulled away from where God was at. In a way, it's preaching to the choir because you're here, right? 
So it's not in like an anger towards anything or anyone or any idea. That's not where my heart is at. I hope you can detect that in my heart. But I do think that there's a warning here. And so what I did was just feel like the Holy Spirit, all these things were coming together. I felt like the Holy Spirit went through the Bible, and I just looked for uh, what warnings did Jesus have for believers? What warnings did Jesus have for believers? Um, Thomas Jefferson, and by the way, I admire him. I think he was one of our true great statesmen, an American, a patriot. Thomas Jefferson did this thing, though. Thomas Jefferson, uh, if you Google this, Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Thomas Jefferson didn't like everything the Bible had to say, so he came up with his own version of the Bible. And here's what he did. He got rid of everything that wasn't in red letters. Everything. So you know what red letter is, right? Most of us don't. Our, Our scriptures are now online and we don't. Red letter was just the words of Jesus. So he got rid of everything in his Bible that wasn't red letter. And then he went back through the red letter and the things that he didn't like, the hard sayings of Jesus, he took those out too. So what he ended up with was a very small Bible, but it only said positive things. So Jesus is very positive. He's the most positive person in the world. So positive that he'd lay down his life because he felt like you're worth it. I mean, put two and two together there. But Jesus also had difficult things to say. Do you agree with that yeah. statement? And, and then here's what typically, um, I, you say me, I find myself tiptoeing around yes. the difficult things. I don't ignore them. I, I haven't gotten rid of them, but I spend very little time ever pointing at them. And the truth of the matter is they're in there for a reason. Do you agree with that? So that, that's sort of the foundationally where this is... Uh, where this is nested in my heart and where it's, uh, where it's kind of marinated and it's, it's, it's coming from. So, um, yeah, yeah, let's go. Three warnings that Jesus talked about prophetically that weren't... He said them 2,000 years ago, uh, but in context, he was speaking of the future, what things would be like when... And um, so I'm going to use Matthew 24 as one of the texts today. Here's why Matthew 24 is important. Just just real quickly. Um, There's no clearer understanding or answer to what it's going to look like. Jesus actually has asked the question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Uh So you can't make that say anything else. It can't mean, you know, like, well, maybe that meant the end of next week. What's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So Matthew 24, 1 begins with Jesus and the disciples coming out of the temple, one of the world wonders of the time. Jesus turns to them and says, do you see this temple? Not one stone will be left on top of the other. The disciples instantly realize that he's speaking of a prophetic event. So they ask him, what's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And then in verse 4, Jesus' first answer, just real quickly, stop everything that you're doing and look at me right now. No more notes for just a second. Just listen. Here's my premise that the first answer Jesus gives is the most important answer. That he's never random, he's never accidental. It's not the first thing that crossed his mind, it's the thing that was in his mind. So the first thing that he says, this is why this is first, because it takes the order of importance. He says many things, but the first thing he says I think we pay attention to, because Jesus said this about himself, I don't say or do anything I haven't heard or seen the Father do. He was never accidental, never random, never like, oh, I wish I could take that back. Never out of control. 
never like lost his temper, never blew it, never let his emotions get the best of him, uh, never in a, I, I mean, how good would it be to be that person right there? So this is important because he's asked a direct question, what's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus' very first answer, I think it's the most significant, is simply this, be careful that no one deceive you. So it's a warning about deception. Now this, listen, listen real quickly. Lest you think this doesn't apply to us, he's not talking about the world at large. He's talking to believers. And in particular, this is a prophetic event that he's talking about in Matthew 24. Read Matthew 24 and 25. It's all prophetic. It's all about his return. It's all about what the earth is going to look like. The earth is going to go through uh, incredible tumultuous things. There'll be lots and lots of signs, lots of energy that you can look at to go, hey, you, you know, this, this is all pointing. Jesus was uncannily accurate. But the first thing that he warns of, be careful that no one deceives you. So I, I just wrote this down. Uh, maybe you'd like to write this down. If he's warning us that we can be deceived, then this is the way to say it. Deception is possible for believers. Yes or no? Yes. It is possible to be deceived. Yes. And in fact, you do yourself a disservice if you think, I can't be deceived. I'm in the right church, reading the right Bible, singing the right songs. In fact, the person who says I can't be deceived is probably already on the road too. Deception. So, the, I mean, if Jesus warns the church about, be careful that no one deceives you, we all should be in a position of thinking, I need to double check. Hey, let me say it this way. Never come in here and check your brain at the door. Don't ever do that. Paul had a group of believers called Bereans, and this is what he said about them. The, the Bereans were more noble or more excellent than the rest of the people listening to my message because they went home and they double-checked in the scriptures to make sure I was telling the truth. Double-check me. Don't just drop your kid off at children's church and go, hey, it's all good. Double-check. I mean, the dude's got dreads down there. Double-check. <laughs> <laughs> Longer hair than his wife? Yeah, yeah. I will say this, though. He's got one of the greatest hearts you'll ever, ever, ever meet. Just because I'm saying double check doesn't mean I'm like, here, there's a secret here. I'm just saying double check. Deception is possible. So listen to this. Here's the problem with deception. Think about this for just a minute. When you're deceived, you don't know that you are deceived. Think about it. If you've ever come across a person who's deceived, you can't out-argue them. You can't out-yell them. You can't out-scripture them. Deception's like a veil. It's like a, a, a blinder that's been attached to a person's frontal lobe and their eyeballs. And it sits there as a blanket that covers them. And see, this is what makes it bad. When a person is deceived, they're not going, look, I know you're right, but I'm just stubborn. That's... When a person, they truly believe they're right. Yes or no? Yes. And so here's what we do. Well, that's them. And that's the problem with deception. The, the, the cure for deception is truth. But then we live in an age where truth is relative. You got your truth and I got my truth and let's all truth together. But by definition, there can't be multiple truth because that's not truth. But culturally, the culture's like, hey, everybody's got, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody and it's your truth, it's okay. 
And inside the church, man, here it is. So it's boiled outside and it simmers inside. So we think, well, it's not, but we bring though, we're afraid to even say those words anymore. So I'm afraid to say those words anymore. I'm afraid to get too close to it for the reaction that it will cause. I know not you guys, but the wimp up here, me, I'm like that. The problem with deception is that you don't know when you're deceived. And so therefore, you can't go, hey, I will recognize deception. Here's what you need. You want to know what grace and mercy really is for in your life? It's the thing that you can't do that God can do. God can reveal truth. God can open your eyes. God can change your heart. You need the Holy Spirit to help you. This isn't us trying to decide how smart we are and where we get our truth from. It's He's truth. And it's got to come through that relationship. I just wrote this down. Um, This in my mind, uh, deception is progressive. And the worst deception uh, begins with this. The the very first step of deception is that you deceive yourself. Because if you'll lie to yourself, you'll lie to anybody. Let me say it one more time. The worst deception is self-deception. Because if you'll lie to yourself, you'll end up lying to everybody. Self-deception is simply the idea of this right here. Look back in your life. Go back 10, 20, 30. What were the things that you stood on that were true? And then ask yourself, have you let them go? Have you moved the line? Have you changed the path? I'm not talking about a person delivered from religion. Or legalism. That's, that's not what I'm speaking to right now. I'm talking about the things that you held, that you know were convictions of God, that you now are like, ah, and you've moved the line. See, when you begin to pray about things that God has said no to, you're asking to be deceived. I'm going to come over here and say the same thing. Listen to what I'm saying right now. When you're praying about things that God has already said no to, You're asking to be deceived. If God has clearly said no, and you're saying, God, change your mind. God, there's got to be another way. God, maybe we just don't understand all of this. What you're doing is asking now to be deceived. I don't want that stance. I want to do what I want to do. And you're asking to be deceived. So the first level of deception is the deception that we lie to ourselves. The second is that we'll lie to others if we lie to ourselves. And the third, and maybe the one where you're really in trouble, is when you begin to lie to God. Now, you know you can't lie to God, ultimately. He knows everything. Hey, I don't know if you know this, but there are two judgments. There's the judgment of the unrighteous and the judgment of the righteous. The unrighteous do not get in that judgment right there. If you love Jesus, you won't. But the judgment of the righteous in the scriptures is called the bema, B-E-M-A, bema seat. It is the, the beam is the light. The seed of God that's the light. And it shines right through your innermost intention. It will reveal, standing before God, why you did what you did. The Bible says that's a day that will not be comfortable for believers because God will weigh all of our works and decide what heart did it come from. And some of those works are dead works because they didn't come from the right place. Can you handle what I'm saying right now? So you're like, Pastor, this really bothers me. Why? Has the kettle been turned so hot that any... We can't take any warning. The motivations and the intentions and why you did what you did. 
So we think to ourselves, no, I just did the good thing. Why did you do the good thing? Was it because you wanted people to think a certain thing? Or I won't stay there. I get it. Uh, let me give you deception personified. How does deception happen? The Bible describes it this way. The book of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a brilliant strategist, a lawyer by trade, uh, intellectual, but also not a guy that sat behind a desk, a guy that's out in the streets. Uh, he's brilliant and he has a heart. He, he is uh, a, a strategist, but he's also caring. So both of those things come together, man, his brain and his heart, and he's a powerful apostle for God. Paul in Romans chapter 1, as an apologist over who Jesus is and, and, and defending what we believe. Paul makes this statement uh, about a society then, but it also would apply in space and time across uh, the border. He says this, the entire world is without excuse because the invisible God has been revealing himself by what can be seen. When you look um, at what has been created and how it exists and the, the, how fragile it is, the zone that we live in the, 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 what, what requires life to exist and how in the vastness of the universe that your mind will never be able to grasp because you are not infinite. Yeah. In the time it's taken me so far to just do this message, the, 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 the entire universe has expanded billions of miles, man. 183,000 miles a second. It's numbers we could never, ever obtain. And we think we can quantify it and bring it down to an understandability. God has made it so big in order to point to the fact that it's impossible. Only a God could. Yes. Yes. And yet we'll point to it and go, no way, it's all accidental. And you'll be without excuse when you stand before God. You have a better chance at winning the $1.5 billion lottery last week than you do for the probabilities of this earth to exist. I'm serious. Look at the numbers sometimes. We just simply read and oh, that's the way it has to be and we never think. You literally had better odds winning the lottery last week than you do existing today. So God says that the invisible God has been showing his attributes by the things that can be seen so that the world was out excuse. And then he goes, they became wise in their own eyes, full of pride explaining their why, and then he says this, they exchanged the truth of God for a, for a lie. When you exchange truth for a lie, that's where deception comes from. When you don't believe what God says, when you, when you have to take everything, and nah, that, that's exchanging the truth for a lie. The truth for a lie is deception. So let me give you three things that might help you in understanding how not to trade the truth for a lie. Here's the first one. It comes from the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. Don't move the ancient boundary stone. Don't move it. Here's what it simply means. Here's what's being said. God laid down the parameters of where to live life at. He gave the whole thing to us, but laid down parameters. Believe me, trust me, and don't go farther than this right here. And when we go farther than that, we're moving the line. And by moving the line, here's what we're saying. God, we can be the God of our own lives. And that's the original lie, and it's the ultimate failure. The original lie was you can be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Yes or no? 
You're not God. You can't handle it. You need to live inside of the boundaries that he gives you. And that goes morally and ethically. It goes the way you love and the way you treat, the way that you talk and the way that you think and how you lived your life. Still love me? Let me give you the second one. Just protecting, trading truth for a lie. The second one, uh, this also uh, is from the book of Jeremiah, the Old Testament. Jeremiah says this, walk on the ancient path. It actually says this, ask God for the ancient path and then walk on it. And then it says this, you'll find rest for your souls. Here's a question for you. Do you think it's possible that if we're not walking on the ancient path, the Christianity that we're trying to live today, the reason it's not satisfying, the reason that so many people are turning loose of it is because it's not the one that Jesus wanted to give us. Therefore, it's not the satisfying one. If there's not much difference between the church and the world, why should people? That makes sense. Why should people? I don't think I would. Jesus, one of his difficult sayings, one of those ones that I wish, I wish I could be like Thomas Jefferson. Take this one out. I don't wish I could be like that. But I get it. Jesus said this, find the narrow gate. And then he gives this warning. Don't go through the wide gate and broad road because it leads to hell. Find the narrow gate. By the way, who is he talking to? He's talking to believers. All of the context here is for believers. Every one of these are spoken to believers. Now, by the way, I don't want you to leave here doubting your salvation. That's not what this message is about. And you don't control that anyway. It's a work of Jesus. Your job, bring heaven to earth. His job, get you to heaven. But the Bible does says this, work out with fear and trembling, New Testament, your salvation. Yes or no? We treat it as though grace were something that God's going to wink at everything. Grace is his work in your life. What you're supposed to be doing is God help. Change, move. Find the narrow gate. Jesus said a few people find it. What does that mean? I mean, you'd have to go to seminary to mess that up. You'd have to be able to, as a doctorate, change that to mean something that it doesn't mean. Few people find it. Let me give you the second, second point, second warning. First one's deception. The second one is just simply spoken to believers too from Matthew 24. Watch out about growing cold. Uh, specifically, he says your love can grow cold, but I think it could also apply that your heart can grow cold. Because from the heart, everything happens. Matthew 24, 12, uh, this is Jesus talking, his first warning. So I think by, by precedent, the very first thing is the thing to watch out for. Don't, don't let anyone deceive you. Then um, he moves down to things that will happen. And then verse 12, this is what he says. Um, because of how much evil is going to be multiplied... Before I return in those days, what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Because of evil being multiplied, believers' hearts can grow cold. You're going to feel the need to protect, to pull back, to withdraw, um, separate. I don't know what the right word is right there, but he just warns the outcome 
of all the evil is that it will be easy for your heart to become jaded and cynical. Just uh, rhetorical. But politics at large today, do you feel jaded and cynical when you... So I'm not saying you should or you should. I'm just at, is it possible for believers to be that way? I mean, come on. You're, you're human. It, it's, it's the emotion is that your heart, it can grow cold. So let, so let me give you, uh, so let me give you these, these three. Matthew 24, 12, um, actually in the King James. So the original translation coming out of um, Bible language into uh, old English and then it moves into modern English. That translation was the King James Version. And so if you even find a translation that uses those words, here, here's actually how it interpreted what Jesus said. Um, because of the rampant evil, the love of many will wax. W-A-X. Wax cold. So it's a word picture. And any of you that ever light a candle can get the picture of what it means. When it's lit and it's burning, it's very soft and pliable, correct? But after it goes out and it cools down, wax Hardens, but it hardens because right afterwards you can stick your finger in it and still get wax on your finger. But after it hardens, you touch it and nothing happens. Just it's as hard as any other surface. So, um, so th- this goes this goes back several years. Uh, this is before kids, BC. That's how far back this goes, BC. <laughs> this is back when I actually had some money, <laughs> and I used to like to ski. PJ, I used to love to ski. Chris and I, that was one of our dates. We'd go skiing. Man, you could go skiing. I mean, Vail was like 30 bucks at the time. It was crazy. It was crazy. It was actually, you could go skiing. Loveland, good Lord, they'd pay you to go to Loveland back in the day. <laughs> I got this brand new pair of skis, K2s from Snea Grab. Went down to Snea Grab, waited in line, into the old Gar Brothers at 10th and Broadway. Remember? Remember how good those days were? Man, you've got to be a Colorado boy or girl to know Snea Grab. Bargains spelled backwards. Okay. Um, and buy this brand new pair of KTs, uh, K2s I had my eye on. I get them home. I'm going to go skiing um, the next day or day after. I don't remember exactly what it was. <laughs> so I buy this bottle of Gulf Wax paraffin. And I go in my garage and I take, I have one of those little mini blow torches you could light up. And I melt the entire bar of wax over the two skis. Because I thought, man, the more wax, this is going to be like lightning going down the hill. You ever see one of those vacation movies where he waxes the bottom of that sled? He jumps on it's like a, I'm, that's how I'm thinking. I am going down the hill faster than anybody's ever gone down the hill. But that's not how it works. And here's what actually happens: if you have too much wax on there, you don't go faster. You go nowhere. So I'm trying to get off the lift, and the skis stick on that hill, and I cannot move, no matter how far. So I. And they just keep coming and coming and coming. And there's a pile up. And I'm the, I'm the one who hates that and laughs at those people. And now I'm the guy at the bottom of the pile. And Chris, Chris is standing to the sides having the best day of her life. Thank God we have no phones back in those days to record that event. It's only up here in my memory. So I have to take my skis off, jump up. I find an outdoor picnic table, and I take that ski, and I am trying to scrape down the side of the picnic table to get that wax off there. And here's what I found out. Wax, when it is so cold, is as strong as steel. It will not let go. So here's the two things about wax. You get too much of it, and you are stuck. 
Just let it sink for a sec. And you get too much of it in your life. It bonds itself with that thing and you can't get rid of it. And it's hard as a rock when it's cold. When it's room temperature, it's still something. You can put a fingerprint in it. But when it's hard as a rock because it's cold, I mean, it's like granite. I had to go and get a screwdriver to get it off of there just so I could ski down to the bottom of the hill. Just real quickly, that's the word picture that it uses that because of the evil in the world, the hearts, the love of many will wax cold. It will happen over time like the temperature being turned up. You don't notice it, but your heart suddenly becomes so hard. Look at me. Look at me. How's your heart? Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart because from it will be your life story. How's your heart? How's your heart? How's your heart? How's your heart? I'm not talking down to you. You want me to do it? How's this heart? Man, our prayer... Here's... I'll just give it away to you. The worst thing about this message, Anthony, here's the worst thing about it is if you find that you have a hard heart, there's not one thing you can do about it except say to God, soften my heart. Because yeah. a man and a woman cannot change their hearts. Have you learned that? You can realize where your heart is. If you could change your heart, you wouldn't need God. Yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah. If you could change your heart, you wouldn't need God. You need God. You can affect, like, I don't like this, or God, I need to make... But that, that real change, that soft, that pliable... Hebrews 2.1, Paul writes, Pay attention to what you've heard so that you don't drift away. He uses the idea again that, you know, when you drift... You don't move from here to here overnight. If that happened overnight, we'd all be aware of it. We'd stand up and say, absolutely not. But when you drift, it happens so gently, uh, peacefully, uh, effortlessly. And then you wake up and you find yourself in this place like, how did I ever get here? But that's not the worst thing. How do I get back? A mooring line of some sort needs to be there to keep you from drifting. Um, Revelations 2.4, Jesus talking to churches. Remember the context, talking to churches. One more time, talking to churches. You do all of these things right, but this one thing, man, you've lost your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen and go back and do the thing you did at first or else you're going to lose your place. Boy, that's a warning. That's a warning. How's your passion for Jesus? How's the fire inside of you? I mean, he makes the comment, I wish that you were hot or cold, but here, here's the don't be lukewarm. Don't be kind of okay about it. Either be against it or be for it, but don't be. Because you're deceiving yourself when you're lukewarm. 
Okay, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm out of time. I'll just throw the last one at you real quick. <laughs> Praise God he's out of time, right? The last one is just uh, pay attention to this. It can happen in church. We think to ourselves, as long as I'm at a church that loves Jesus and a pastor would even have the wherewithal to challenge, it's got to be good. But that's, um, that ain't it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes this to a group of believers. Realize this. In the last days, remember the context, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money, boastful and arrogant, revilers of good, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving. They'll be irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness, but they'll deny that there's any power that actually works inside of it. Listen to this, avoid these people, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women in the church. They're weighed down with sin, led on by various impulses, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's a warning. It's a powerful warning. It's one of those scriptures that we just simply, we, we ignore. We don't, it's not comfortable, it's not fun, it does not... But the outcome, I had this guy say this to me at coffee on Friday about accountability. He said, if you had cancer and you know you needed an operation, you'd never tell the surgeon, here's what you can and can't cut. You'd tell the surgeon, this is your job, do what you need to do. You'd be foolish to only do the part you want done. You'd want it all gone, right? I mean, that, that just... in in. In time and space, that makes sense. And then, so when you take the Bible and you only allow it to touch the area that's easy, in effect, what you're saying is, if there's cancer in there, I don't want you to touch that. <clears throat> Courage, pal. Uh, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I can for sure tell you that I have not shied away from this one. I've used it from time to time. Jesus speaking, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In that day they will say to me, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons, and did miracles in your name. And then Jesus, maybe the saddest words that are ever spoken in the Bible, depart from me because I don't know who you are. And their classic mistake was that they said we're doing the stuff, but they didn't know him. And so here's the warning, personified, encapsulated, and portable. Everything that we do, if it's not done in passion to Him, is the wrong thing to do. Going to church for the sake of going to church, it won't hold water when you stand before the Lord. And giving, and loving, and serving, and going into foreign lands... All of it, unless it comes from this relationship here. It's a dead work, man. And perhaps you're like, Pastor, you're being a real jerk. I'm really loving you right now, whether you know it or not. 
That warning in 2 Timothy says this, that another thing that will mark end times is that people will heap teachers to themselves who tickle their ears because they won't want to hear the truth. A steady diet of a message like this week in and week out, mm, it's like a bodybuilder that works on his upper arms, great big arms and little chicken legs. You ever seen that? (laughs) Right? But a message that's just, hey, uh, the red letter things that are easy produces a believer that's out of balance that way. And these things are in here because they're to produce balance in our lives. I said it last week. Those who are producing fruit, I'll prune to get more fruit from them. That's what you signed up for, to be fruitful. Where are you at with what I'm teaching right now? Are you indifferent? Angry? Put off? Aggravated? Convicted? Are you hoping I'll just shut up? Are you like, I need this? I mean, where are you at with it? Just honestly, it's rhetorical in your own heart. Where are you at with it? What do you think? Am I wrong? Am I right? Am I out of context? Am I right where you need me to be? I mean, what do you do? Uh, Here's what we're going to do. Communion today is a little bit different in that we put these uh, self-contained units on your seat. And I've got a few people around the sanctuary that have some extras in case you walked in and somebody stole yours. So (laughs) if you're just sure it got stolen, if you don't have one, raise your hand real quick because I want you to participate in this. Make sure you have one. Everybody got one? Okay. Here, here's what I want to do. The answer, the cure, um, the help in all of this is Jesus. Uh, we need Jesus to touch our heart. We need God to help us overcome. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal things and to make it plain. We need His work in us to make any of this possible. If you leave here and you go try harder, that's, boy, that's the worst, worst mistake of all mistakes. God doesn't want you to try harder. He wants you to surrender to Him. God, I need you. God, help me. God, have mercy on me. Communion is an opportunity for us to take into ourselves. It's a, uh, a representation of believers doing two things. We take into ourselves the work of Jesus, that he gave his life for us, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete the good work inside of us. And it's a representation that at some point we will take this supper. Uh, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus himself. Jesus said, I won't drink of the vine again until I do it with you in my Father's kingdom. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a day that'll be. Look at me real quick. Don't miss that supper. Call me whatever you want, but not late for that supper, man. Be at that supper right there. Be at that supper. And so when we do this, it's just a reminder, a deposit, or a uh, a guarantee that we're going to do it for real with him in his presence forever. Now, um, if you're not used to this, it, it, it's a two-pole. The first one is the cellophane on the top. See how I'm doing it? To be able to get the bread out. And then the second pole is over the juice. 
Go ahead and do that now, but don't drink and eat. Hold it so we can do it as a family. It sounds like a million little crickets right now, so I'll wait till I hear it die down. If you spill it or drop it, I bet there's one on the floor next to you, in front of you if there's an open seat. Okay, this is what the Bible says. Listen to these two scriptures. I taught this one from the book of Haggai for the last two weeks. Examine your ways. Examine your ways. And then Paul in Corinthians, talking to a church about communion. Listen to the context. About communion. says, let us examine ourselves before we take communion. So that we don't do it in a wasteful way. The wasteful way, by the way, is not you getting your stuff together. The thing that you're supposed to do right now is recognize none of this is possible unless God enters my life. None of this is possible unless God works in my heart. None of this is possible unless God delivers me and helps me. None of it's possible. And that's what we remind ourselves of right now. That God, we need you. And if your heart is um, eh, just one of these three places, if it's indifferent, be real and be honest and tell God, my heart's indifferent, change it. If your heart's cold, please hear me. Tell God it's cold. He knows. You can't fool him. And if it is cold, care enough right now to say, God, change my heart. If it's hot. May that increase. May God get more fruit from you than ever before. But either way, wherever you find your heart at right now, the invitation is that you have a place at this table. God loves you and he cares for you and has a heart for you. He wants your heart in that right place too. So as we take this in, it's with the knowledge that God, I take you in. Work on me. Thank you for loving me and caring for me. The Bible says in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. He blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this and remember me. Remember what I've done for you. Let's eat it together and remember. It says in the same manner, he stood with the cup, lifted it to heaven, thanked the Father, and then said, this is now my blood which is shed for you. It's the new covenant. And the Bible says it's a new covenant because it's based on better promises than we had in the old covenant. The promises are not that the Messiah is coming. The promise is that he sent the Messiah. And that all can be right between us and him. Jesus, we need you. We'll never have a day in our life where we don't need you. We needed you from the beginning. We need you today and we're going to need you at the end. We remind ourselves of the new covenant that you laid down your life for us and you did it gladly. The joy set before you, Father God, was your motivation, knowing that at some point we'd all be together, knowing that you saved us, rescued us. Father, as we live that out in this time and in this place, God, keep our hearts where they're soft and pliable, where they're passionate and hot. Don't let us be lukewarm. Don't let us be indifferent. Don't let us be cold. Let us be hot. 
work in us in Jesus' name. Let's drink. We're going to close with this song right here. Um, I pulled you longer. Uh, it's 1020 if you need to know. So I'd like five more minutes before you just uh, cut. I think the song is worthy of the Holy Spirit. Seal this in my life. Let this seed fall on soil, not hard, not rocky, not indifferent. Soil that's soft and pliable where the Holy Spirit can bring, can bring produce in your life, can bring fruit.